0: Welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast. I'm your host, Ben Plumley, and this is a podcast about global health and human rights. We're brought to you in partnership with the Bay Area Global Health Alliance, a network of academic institutions, companies from the biotech, tech and other sectors, NGOs and community organizations, all based in the San Francisco Bay Area and all committed to improving the health of people around the world. You can find out more about the Alliance at www.bayareaglobalhealth.org. Well, in this episode, we are going down and dirty with some of the messy, occasionally exalted, and all too often repugnant aspects of global pandemics, our own human attitudes to them. We're joined by Mark King, HIV activist, journalist, speaker, and creator of the hugely influential video blog, My Fabulous Disease, which you can find at MarkSKing.com, Now, Mark and I are gonna explore the conundrum of discrimination and stigma, which holds humanity back in so, so many ways. Mark, welcome to A Shot in the Arm. Thank you, Ben. Thank you very much, I appreciate it. Oh, it's a real honor to have you on the show. I've been hoping to uh, have you as a guest for a very long time. Um, Maybe I could start with a a definition of stigma and discriminations that UNAIDS offered, really over a decade ago, Um, And and as we use the term so frequently uh, in relation to HIV, it might be worth just seeing if this makes sense. So they say that HIV-related stigma uh, describes a process of devaluation of people either living with or associated with HIV. And um, the stigma often stems from the underlying stigmatization of sex and intravenous drug use, two of the primary roots of HIV infection. UNAIDS goes on to say that discrimination follows stigma and is the unfair and unjust treatment of an individual based on their real or perceived HIV status. The two, like two uh, uh, evil twin sisters, breach fundamental human rights and and can occur at a number of different levels, including the political, the economic, the social, the legal, the uh, psychological and institutional. So, uh, Mark, does that sound about right to you as a definition?
1: Yes, it does sound about right. I mean, I keep things simple. And so my simple definition is stigma is how you view someone. Discrimination is how you treat someone. Obviously, there are overlaps there. And when you talk about the political, the legal, all of those things are usually action-oriented. That's discrimination. But, of course, it is born out of stigma. It is born out of how we view people, how we uh, tend to discredit them. Um, And and chief among them, people living with HIV, who we've always viewed as somehow damaged, untrustworthy, uh, and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a, a lessening then, it's a, it's a, it's a position, positioning people as the other.
0: Yeah, and the lesser,
1: yeah. Yes. So
0: so you're, you're now having lived through two major pandemics, HIV and mm-hmm. SARS-CoV-2. I, I guess I'm interested to know, what would you say are the differences and similarities between your experiences of the two?
1: You know, it's funny. Uh, at first, I was very offended by people comparing them at all yeah. because of what we as people living with HIV had gone through the first time. Um, and, and, you know, and, and I, I reserve the right to change my mind. I do it all the time. And uh, in this case, I realized shortly thereafter that that's how we learn. That's, that's how we learn. We compare and contrast as human beings. And, and, uh, and there's nothing particularly wrong with that. Um, uh, so, so I don't mind the comparisons as much as I used to. Um, the easy comparison for me, the way I put it, is that HIV is the nasty butt-fucking-cousin of COVID, mm. uh, meaning COVID is going to affect your grandmother and people for whom society cares a lot. And HIV, uh, by and large, affected those for whom society doesn't care all that much.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I always used to describe HIV uh, as Ebola in slow motion, or uh, mm. Ebola as HIV on acid. But but it, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but COVID has, you know, I think has changed the way we, we think about so many things. Does it gall you? That it has taken us barely a year to develop a slate of effective vaccines, okay, not treatments, but vaccines for COVID-19, while it took mm-hmm. us 15 years to get some of some kind of effective treatment. And you know, the very first ARV triple therapies were not the easiest in the world. And you know, our HIV vaccine work is still way, way off. Do you think this can all be explained by the differences in knowledge about the two viruses and the advanced state of medical knowledge in 2021? Or, or do you think society just cares more in 2021?
1: Well, you know, the easy, an- well, I say the easy answer, the answer that I want to go to in terms of instinctually is I want to say, yeah, they didn't care about HIV, God damn it, you know, but uh, as you are suggesting, uh, they are two very different viruses, and and that's the facts. And and that is not to say that they we were not slow out of the gate with HIV. We absolutely were, um, but I don't think that you can judge the 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 uh, the swiftness of of scientific breakthroughs between. One virus and another one, of course, being a retrovirus, so which we've never found a vaccine for. And so it is uh, it's a little unfair to do that, Um, although I'm not a researcher and I'm not a clinician. You might be more you might be more in a position to 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 uh, challenge me on that, Um, that being the case. It is true that we've learned things from HIV that that have helped us in in a, in a you know broadway throughout all science you know we we changed a few things in terms of FDA approval and clinical trials did we not which probably helped uh, our research with uh, COVID but yeah they're different viruses yes I wish the science and public at large had gotten behind HIV but you know I, I got to keep my I try to keep my anger in check. Um, Uh, because it is sometimes not a very good, uh, productive emotion. Um, and, uh, and as a drug addict in recovery, I got to be real careful in terms of where I invest my anger, you know? Um, but, uh, so, so, uh, that, that may not be, and that may not be a very helpful emotion for an AIDS activist either, not (laughs) to to be slow to anger. Um, but, um, I tend to give people the benefit of the doubt maybe too often.
0: Well, (sighs) well. I think with with COVID and HIV it, to some degree you're right it's apples and oranges and mm-hmm. and we've certainly seen the the lessons learnt in HIV being applied in future uh, uh, in following epidemics a little bit say when we decided to treat hepatitis but certainly mm-hmm. as we started understanding new zoonotic infections that were coming like like SARS and COVID but one similarity that has struck me, and it it's something I think we in the AIDS movement knew and have been passionately arguing about, and that is the terrible inequity of access to medical advances oh, across yeah. the global south and the global north, um, and indeed within countries, especially the USA um, so So, do you think we've learned anything there from the lessons of access to medicines? I mean, you know it depresses me so deeply that we're only now just seeing the first vaccinations in Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire and South Africa, Um, I sort of feel that the global community should should have known what to expect and been more aggressive, I think.
1: This get, talk, about, talk about having to choose my anger carefully. This gets me angry. So thanks a lot, Ben. You're already putting me in that position. And, and, and you don't have to look any further, global South, you don't have to look any further than the American South to see infection rates and a complete breakdown of health care that rivals sub-Saharan Africa in terms of HIV. You look at the way we're treating COVID right now. We're all taking off our masks and going back to restaurants in Texas and Mississippi, two states that are... That are in the top five of new infection rates and among the worst states when it comes to the new variants of COVID. So, we haven't learned much in the United States. We are still driven, as always, from this misguided American exceptionalism, this misguided American freedom to do whatever we want, uh, and old racism. And racism and the haves and the have nots and, dis- and the discrepancies between who has access, access to health care and prevention um, and who does not. And if you look at the uh, demographic makeup of Texas and Mississippi, you pretty much have people uh, who are white and privileged and have access to health care and have gotten their COVID shots or they'll be the first in line uh, versus those who have not, who are going to get left behind, who, what, the, that's what the, let's all take off our masks. Everybody that matters is already covered. Um, so there are, we haven't learned a goddamn thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and learned we haven't gotten past Americans' original sin. We haven't gotten past um, what the hell to do about race, even after 2020. Because remember, even in a, in a COVID lockdown, we all learned what, that Black Lives Matter or, or that people learned it for the first time that weren't paying attention before. And still here we are. Here we are. So I want to come back to the question
0: of of uh, racial uh, uh uh, equity and equality and i know those are two very different different words with different meanings yes, but yes. but i want to come back to your history um and how you think about your life um, oh. you know um uh, <clears throat> you're going to be embarrassed or maybe you're not but you know you are one of the most inspiring leaders in the aids response certainly in the us and i've rashly called you the queen mother of the us aids response have you called me that publicly, Ben? <laughs> I'm afraid so. Or is this a first? <laughs> no, sadly, this is a second. This is reinforcement. Okay. But it does right. speak to the role model that you've had for so many of us. Um, you tested positive in 1985. You fought addiction. You just spoke about that. But you've built, in the last decade, uh, an an incredible um, uh, package of social media and... Uh, and emerged as one of the most influential community leaders, speakers, and journalists. And I I just really want to know, how did you do that? Um,
1: (laughs) Um, Authenticity? Um, the idea that um, when I got into this, I didn't want uh, HIV to strip me away from who I was. I didn't want the HIV. I, although I say I don't want to be defined by HIV. Who am I kidding? I've got HIV tattooed on my forehead. I mean, that's who I am. That's who I present to the world. But I didn't want it to take away my joy. And uh, and earlier on, and I've been writing about living with HIV about as long as I've been living with HIV, mm. um, I had my sense of humor. And what I didn't see, particularly in the first 20 years or so, were people writing with a sense of humor about living with HIV and what it meant. I mean, we've always had that. You can go back as far as, you know, uh, Diseased pariah news, the newsletter, to see that people with HIV have always had a sense of humor, um, but I, I wanted to bring out that to the surface. And so I think that's where I found my voice and kind of my niche, but uh, I would encourage anybody to do it. And, and, and as soon as you start talking about, I am all this or that, you know, my imposter syndrome, you know, starts striking in and I'm thinking, you know, I don't know about, I I think all I've done is stay true to myself and written. I I am a guy with HIV and a keyboard. Mm. That's who I am. And I have an opinion. And, um, I, and there is a certain shamelessness about that. Um, but as I often say, I have been taught by the HIV community to live without shame. Yeah. And so I am going to be a little shameless about myself and kind of spreading the, my sense of joy about it, um, but also calling people out and getting angry when it's called for. Yeah. Um, so how did I do that? I just wrote and wrote and wrote and spilled it out and tried to remain teachable and figured out when I was wrong, and uh, and kept going forward. So coming back to discrimination and stigma,
0: um, mm-hmm. how? I mean, obviously through through humor, through sheer bloody mindedness, you've 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 walked through that, if you like. You've walked through the mm-hmm. the valley of the shadow of death, to to, mm-hmm. to borrow the psalms. But but how did? discrimination and stigma affect you, outside stigma and discrimination?
1: I think most of it um, was thrown on myself. Um, Especially, I mean, it depends on what era of HIV you wanna talk about. But if I look at the 80s, I I was diagnosed on March 15th is when I got my test results at the Ides of March. Hey, that's coming up, isn't it? It is. Um, In 1985, just a couple of weeks after the test was made available. and. Uh, And the next 10 years was uh, spent, well, well, watching friends die and doing that whole, you know, routine between, you know, hospital rooms and memorial services and all of that. And those of us who were there remember what that's like. And those of us who weren't there, I'm always happy to tell the story. Mm. Um, But in terms of stigma, a lot of that was placed on myself. You see enough evangelists on the TV set saying well, see, we told you. Look at them. Who's getting it? Who's dying from it? See? And even for a guy that tried to reject organized religion by then, a, a lot of it seeped through. Yeah. And a lot of it told me maybe they're right. Maybe they're right. Maybe I am God damned. Maybe I am. Maybe everything I heard from the pulpits. Growing up as a Southern Methodist, maybe they were right. And so you can't escape a little piece of that. And so I I, I think a lot of that stigma was on myself. A lot of people had it worse. A lot of people were, uh, you know, uh, I lived in West Hollywood in the 80s when all of this was going on, living with HIV. I had gay friends who were kicked out by their gay roommates. You know, it wasn't yeah. just limited to the conservatives. You know, everybody was freaked out. You couldn't get a manicure in West Hollywood, you know. So, you know, I, I, people had it worse. I, I put a lot of it on myself. Yeah. I didn't feel worthy.
0: Yeah. And I think, I think that is true for so many, I think, and certainly, certainly for myself. <clears throat> there is a, a, an, an African-American activist that you and I both know very well, Ace Robinson. And, and he oh, yeah. talks about the continued discrimination by primarily white leaders of the AIDS movement against the people most directly affected by HIV, primarily people of color. Um, and I was, uh, I was really interested on, on how you you respond to that. I mean, for me, it's a very, very personal issue. You, you may recall I used to run the Pangaea Global AIDS Foundation. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. was a Bay Area based global AIDS think tank. And, and we just got to the point where it was just not morally, let alone financially, just not morally feasible to justify uh, the continued existence of a, a you know, a headquarters in, in the San Francisco Bay Area, albeit in Oakland. And so we rightly, I think, um, Handed the work, handed the leadership, um, passed the baton on, if you like, to the Pangaea Zimbabwe AIDS Trust for, for Southern mm-hmm. Africa, and to the amazing AIDS Care China that has expanded dramatically across Southeast Asia. But ultimately, for me, this was a, about building solidarity. And and mm-hmm. you know, I think one of the things that you have done, um, even when there are uh, arguments that that seem to divide us in the AIDS movement um, early attitudes to prep might be one such example, but where you have been so clear about the need to build solidarity and and I wonder what your thoughts are as it relates to you know building up the next generation of leaders from uh, from communities of color in the AIDS response mm-hmm.
1: well, gosh that 's a lot um, and And let me start with ace um, let me let me amplify what he said um, and and basically, to paraphrase that, um, we got a racism problem even within the HIV community um, we, and, and to me, it reflects on power and on who has a seat at the table and all of that stuff, which all sounds kind of you know high concept, but it, this is how it plays out when HIV happened. A lot of white gay men, cisgender white gay men, entered the arena and said, we got to do something about this. And we pushed aside the healthcare, care, um, uh, the public health people who were heterosexual and didn't know what they were, you know, didn't understand us and said, make room for us. And because we need to broaden this and, and we need to do things that reflect our own needs. And we did really esteemable things. We did wonderful things. We built organizations and and uh and and built a response and that was all great. Um and then um you know, it's not as if black men and women weren't there around there somewhere. We were just weren't paying a lot of attention mm-hmm. to them. And um why? Because we're innately racist and and then as those, those black organizations and those black potential leaders stepped up, who was in power? Us. And we were like, oh, no, we got this. Mm-hmm. We became the paternalistic people that we had tried to move aside so that we could. Be in a position of power, and we played the same game as the struggle that we had had. But apparently, we're better at it because we continue to be in yeah. positions of power all these years later. And um, uh, you know, I, I got to claim my privilege. I got. I got to do it every day. I got to think about what it really means in terms of uh, how I've behaved over those years, how I've been paternalistic, or dismissive. I remember being on a Ryan White Planning Council, you know, that was distributing funds on a county level and looking at black organizations with leaders who were not as well-educated as others and going, well, you know, who should get the money? Who could, who could uh, manage it best? I remember having that, you know, um, and, and, and I would say to myself, I'm not racist. I'm just trying to do what's best for these funds. I, I mean, I have to claim that thought process. You know, when was that? 25 years ago yeah. or whatever. I, it, it, and, 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 and as I've grown into maturity and as I've grown into working alongside black men and women, trans men and women, you know, the things change. But boy, is it hard. And I can't, you know, you know why it is, uh, you know, you see a lot of... Um, you see a lot of videos with, you know, especially during the last year with Black Lives Matter saying, you know, um, just be grateful that we're not asking for everything we deserve. Yeah. Just yeah. be grateful that we're not as angry as we should be. And, and uh, um, so there we go. I think that ACE is right in terms of there being an, an innate racism within HIV organizations. And a lot of us just still aren't ready to let go of the power yeah. that comes with what we fought for ourselves.
0: Yeah. And we just have to. And it's certainly something I want to be coming back to. And I'd certainly love to have further conversations with you about, you know, what our responsibility is in owning this as well as supporting people coming up through the ranks. And my gosh, there are some incredible leaders, um, men, women. um,
1: Well, well. let's have that conversation now, Ben, really quickly. And because I should say, yes, here we are, two gay, white men talking about this and I go through this all the time. Do I use my platform to talk about black men and women or do I hand them the mic? What's the difference? You know, and, and to me, the difference is I try to take opportunities to let, to, to let my, um, fellow advocates of color and women speak for themselves. You know, and what does that mean? Turning over my platform to them, you know, uh, highlighting them, you know, um, I remember getting jobs when I, and I didn't have a master's degree in this or that, but I was running educational programs because it was lived experience. Yeah. Because I knew what I was doing, I was working in it, and we need to be giving, you know, we need to be giving our black, they've got the lived experience that I can't, you know, so uh, giving opportunities, um, the same opportunities that we had, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah, I'm, I, I'm on the board of two organizations in the Bay Area. Um, CalPEP, California Prostitutes Education Project, which is, I guess, the main HIV testing organization in the East Bay in Oakland. Uh, that is very much an African American led organization. Um, and, you know, uh, my fellow board members and the senior staff are very clear that I'm there to help them raise money. Punto. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and that is fine um and the other organization is the san francisco community health center a federally federally qualified health center that Mm -hmm. you know provides services to um people of color uh trans communities and um you know i think the biggest contribution i can make there is just shut up and Mm -hmm. you know how can i be how can i be helpful you you have um You've reported from many countries around the world, uh, and I confess that you and I have some wonderful selfies that I took from AIDS conferences um, <laughs> in Melbourne and Durban and other places. Uh-huh. But how have you oh. seen stigma and discrimination, discrimination and stigma, take take hold in different shapes in different cultures?
1: Well, you know, we, we've been at those conferences, and so... Uh, uh, we see it with our own eyes, don't we? You know, I, there are, you know, the, there's. I generally go to the pre-conference, the MSM, men who have sex with men, pre-conference uh, that was put on by MSMGF, who is now Impact Global, right? And um, uh, to speak to uh, that population, to, with whom I most closely relate, right, the mm-hmm. other gay men, are men who have sex with, and 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 then, but to see the enormous uh, difference in terms of there are, there are men there from countries that are risking their lives yeah. to show up who are there, uh, you know, under false pretenses or having to convince employers to let them go and pretend it's something else or, you know, and they're not going to that gay thing, you know, because um, they're literally risking their lives. And uh, um, it's, uh, it's a humbling, humbling. Uh, it's, I, I don't, I'm not sure what to say about it other than how incredibly humbling it is. I've, I've done, um, you know, video reports from Mm -hmm. those meetings in which I have a variety of, of people, you know, and of course uh, the guys from Amsterdam and Australia are like, yay, we're gay, you know, and, and then there are others who are uh, from that cannot and are not, you know, Uh, and those are the ones that agreed to speak to me, you know, you know, even, uh, speak to me, much less on camera, you know? Some some would speak to me, and some wouldn't even speak to me at all because they could, you know, it's just, yeah, yeah it's a humbling thing.
0: You know, I'd love to share with you a story of my own from the, from the mid-90s when I started working internationally on the AIDS response. We were in a, a Southern African country, which will remain anonymous, and I thought I was being particularly brilliant in arranging to meet very confidentially Um, an emerging uh, gay group to see if the organization I was working for then, Positive Action, could fund them or support them in a a way. Mm -hmm. And I I was amazed. And to this day, I'm still shocked about uh, the very polite but quizzical response that I got. Uh, Why would I want to fund uh, a gay group to do HIV testing and care support? Did I not know that HIV does not infect men who have sex with men? It's a disease that affects straight people. Um, and yes, that is really shocking. But I realized in very stark terms that I was in no position uh, to impose my values on them and say, no, 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 you're wrong, you're wrong. The only role I had to play was to help them access information that they you know they then they then digested. and you know and I'm not saying in 1996 that they weren't wrong. I have I mean, no idea. But I, I do recognise that a community organisation with no bank account, suddenly receiving international funding and attention, could put them potentially at very serious exposure and risk, um, and 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 that's why I think groups like Frontline AIDS, formerly the International AIDS Alliance, do such an important job in in sort of building community and building access into to information in ways that are ways that are. Um, appropriate and don't put people uh, people at risk so i'm so glad you you raised that but but in your travels were there examples of fighting stigma and discrimination that really stood out to you and you thought yeah this is this is something i can really take with me
1: oh gee whiz um you know uh yeah there are a couple of african countries that will remain nameless um and um i uh There's no particular example that springs to mind. Um, There are people I know that are here in the States um, doing public health and HIV work that can't go home, Hmm. that are living uh, one extended, um, uh, you know, uh, not citizenship, but like work, you know, work period at a time hoping not to have to be forced to the position of returning because they can't go back because they're they're on the list they're um they've been identified as uh homosexual or uh, working within the HIV field and trying to help other gay men and uh they're not they wouldn't be welcome home their their uh their physical safety would be uh at risk um and so and yet they're doing such amazing work here uh and uh, just hope that they can continue getting, you know, work programs to stay. Yeah, um, that, that's that's everything that comes to mind. Yeah.
0: Oh, and that's where we have to be supporting them absolutely, and particularly with this new administration. Now, I wanted to talk more about cultural differences, and you know, I'm going to ask this: your review of a particular drama about the AIDS response in the UK in the 1980s. Uh, It's a Sin, it generated a lot of very heated, shall I say, responses from the other side of the Atlantic. Um, Now, you didn't like the series, and that's all good and fine, but did those responses surprise you?
1: Um, the, um, the, The intensity surprised me. And it's given me a lot to think about in terms of the attention I have. I have um, a lot of activists, advocates on the other side of the pond that, um, uh, with whom I have g- great friendships and all of that, who were alarmed, who were hurt, who were troubled <laughs> um, by this review. And you know, I have to stand by. I, I do well. I'm like I say, I can always change my mind if I. But but this was uh, the series was a work of art. I had a response to it. It wasn't. Particularly positive, and, um, uh, and 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 I said so, and um, it brings up a lot. I don't want to. And here's the thing: I want to discuss why the response was, but I don't want to then turn it on them and say, "Well, they, they didn't like my review because of the following reasons." You know, they um, they didn't li- they did not like my opinion of it. And they didn't agree with it. And it's as simple as that and we could leave it right there. But there's a certain possessiveness about it, isn't there? There's a certain sense of Oh my God, they, they created something and it's about AIDS. And what if they never create another thing about AIDS again? And we have to like it. Hmm. Or there's a certain amount of um, confirmation bias. Is that a word is that a is that a scientific term? I hope so. I would um, imagine. The so, idea yeah that we can seek out things that confirm in other words, we go in wanting to love it so much because my God, it's our history. Um, It's interesting. Gus Carnes, whom I adore, um, UK, uh, who, who has his uh, really uh, uh, come uh, really resisted my review, shall we say? Um, And um, he talks about it's a feeling. It it, it may Mm -hmm. not have gotten all the facts right, or maybe it didn't. And let's remember, it's not a documentary. Right. So, but he says it got the feeling right for him. Well, who am I to, who am I to, dis, you know, disregard his feelings? You know, if, if, if it brought back the feeling um, uh, for him, okay, okay, good. Um, we, we need as much representation as we get. There will be another one. There will be another series, another movie, another painting, another book. Uh, and, and we need them all you know I, I don't say people shouldn't go watch it. it's a sin i'm just saying it didn't work for me yeah you know and i and 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 i i've outlined the reasons why i just didn't think it worked i didn't think it was ultimately very good well um, you, you know it resonated for me terribly
0: and 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 just like gus said it it opened up all sorts of wounds and memories i thought i had managed to put away uh, you 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 mentioned gus talking about this is what it felt like and And that's absolutely right. And you know the levels of stigma and discrimination that were imposed upon us from the outside, as well as on ourselves from the inside, uh, I, I think there is something really, very peculiarly British about it. And um, mm. you know, it's taking place when you've got this government, the Thatcher government that that you know is really uh, antagonistic to the LGBT community. We have, at the time, next to no information about HIV and you know, are all trying to get as much as we can from New York and San Francisco. But I do understand why it makes no sense outside of that context. Um, and particularly, you know, this, this crazy society that since the 1980s has completely rewritten its approach to LGBT. You know, we've, Britain thinks of itself as one of the most tolerant just go back twenty years, you know. Th- that's when the the dreadful Section Twenty Eight, which prevented teachers from talking about homosexuality, that's when it finally got uh, got written, you know, written off the books. Uh, it also reminds me of the way the British have completely um, rethought their role in, in in building one of the biggest empires in the world. But you said something in your review that for me is really important. And if you don't mind, I'll I'll just read it to you. Um, It's a sin blames everything but HIV itself. Meanwhile, the virus keeps on replicating, right now, just as it did back then, utterly unconcerned with the judgments of humankind. And that's what, to me, that's so right. And it's what makes discrimination and stigma just so exhausting and unnecessary. But what do you think are the uh, essential stories that, that you feel need to be told about the U.S. experience still?
1: Racism. You know, um, we, uh, oh boy, another series about white guys. Yeah, let's, let's make sure we do another series about what it was like in New York. <laughs> you yeah. know, um, the South, Mississippi, you know, what, what, what has it been like between the coasts? You know, um, I, uh, I those stories, you know, we, we gotta we gotta make opportunities for those to happen. I, I want to go back to It's a for just to say everything you just talked about. It was like. It's a Sin was the spark for you, but everything you talked about, none of that was in the movie. It, would ju- it just inspired you to think about all of these other things and relate it to your own experience. And, and that's what art should do. So in that, ca- in that regard, It's a Sin was successful. It brought out stuff for you that made you think about all your other, uh, you know. I mean, I'm not immune to it. I'm not immune to the emotions that were in that series. You know, you show me a plate of food left out of a hospital room, and I lose it. Because I was there, I remember what it was like. They put me in the full regalia, man the the suit, the gloves, the masks, just to go in to see my best friends. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I brought the I brought the tray, and I remember that, you know. And and it's it's a trigger, and I and I lose it. Yeah. Um. So um. You know. It. it, it uh. But what are the stories that have yet to be told? The ones between the coasts, man. You know, the, the ones that have to do with people, uh, you know, who are not making the decisions in Hollywood about what gets told. And so we have to find the platforms to do that. I'm, something that's really front of mind for me right now is the fact that we are losing um, storytellers. We are losing uh, the generation that was there. And I don't just mean the Larry Kramers and the Joseph Sonobans. I'm talking about the Ron Simmons and uh, the Mario Coopers and the uh, the black men and women who were on the front lines who never got to tell their story, who never got an HBO deal. Right. You know? The Gloria um, Lockets and,
0: in in yes. in Oakland who spent 35 years building up that local aid's response in the shadow of San Francisco. That story must be told.
1: Yes. Because we have to create that quilt of stories. No, nothing's going to be definitive, and uh, and um, you know, it's a sin. You know, the band played on. Whatever they all are, they're going to eventually create a narrative that they're going to that they're going to believe fifty years, hundred years from now. Hmm. What is it? And and in that quilt, are there? Is everything, is everybody covered? Well, no, they're not. And, and, and unfortunately, in the here and now, just like we're doing now, this podcast will live forever. It's digital. It'll be online. It'll be floating around somewhere, right? And hopefully, you're going to take this podcast, you know, when you're done or even now and, and make sure that it's included in an archive mm-hmm. at some major university where they can, you know, the, 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 the students and, and historians can, can access it forever, I want to do that with my fabulous yes. disease. I want to make sure that it's part of an archive that people can access. It was an archive that will be used for for research or whatever. We got to make sure all our stories are told, and we have to we have to encourage people whose stories haven't been told, just pick up their phone and start talking into it, yeah. and and donate it to an archive that's doing that sort of work.
0: Yeah, I I completely agree with you, and I think the the discipline of oral history. Uh, recording and documenting is, is also one of the things in the last sort of three decades of the 20th century. is one of major, major achievements. And it's one that technology, particularly in the age of COVID, has really enabled us to, to exploit. So I'm completely with you. Mm. Now, now, changing tack a bit, and I realize we're coming up to the top of the hour. I, in researching this podcast, so I knew you had been on a game show. But the one thing I didn't know is that you had starred in TV commercials at the beginning of your career. You'd done
1: McDonald's. I love how, first of all, I love how you say starred. Oh. It's like anyone who's done porn is a porn star. Anyone who's <laughs> done a commercial is starred in commercials.
0: Well, so great. you know, McDonald's, Denny's, but then yes. this, this really, if you don't mind my saying, really rather unsettling thing called golden flake potato chips.
1: It's just like, <laughs> what the hell was that? It was a Southern brand, okay? It was a Southern brand. Don't go get on, the, you know, don't, don't get on our Golden Flake down in Alabama. We had them. Um, yes, I had a um, string of commercials because as a young man, an aspiring actor, um, I never took it very seriously, but I did look like Opie Taylor and Howdy Doody all rolled into one. And I had this all-American kind of red-haired, freckle-faced, thing going on I always said I was the asexual best friend of the hot guy in the commercial that's who I was and uh so I would do all of those fast food commercials and um I did it because I looked super young until I was in my mid-20s and then I kind of grew out of it and I stopped I didn't I you know it was it was fun while it lasted uh, and I, I went on to, uh, you know, well, AIDS work began about then. So, you know, life moved on. Um, but yes, thank you uh, for pointing that out. I hope that you, this is all because you were charmed by them. I was dorky, but adorable. Well, so I, 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 I will
0: share, I'll share something with you that not very many people know. At that very time, in a very peculiarly British way, I was a... I was a regular host on a British television series called Company that aired at midnight every, uh, every night on the TV South Channel. And it was the program, you know, just before closed down. And um, <clears throat> there may be a couple of tapes of this. If they are, they are locked in a vault in a Geneva bank, never to see <laughs> the light of day.
1: And I only got I, 60 no, I pounds have a feeling. I, I don't know why. I, I think that you probably look like very flock of seagulls about that. <laughs> you know? Am I right? Oh, and I,
0: was, I was trying to look like the human league, you know. Oh, yeah, that's
1: right. Exactly.
0: <laughs> well, well, well we've, we've, we've sort of come to the end. Um, have we missed anything? Is there anything that you feel our, our viewers and listeners really ought to know about you, about your work and the issues that are, are really concerning you at the moment?
1: People are welcome to come visit me at My Fabulous Disease and see what damn thing I've said now. Um, or uh, if it, or turn it inward and find out if there's a story of yours that you haven't seen on the BBC or HBO uh, and that you want to make sure is chronicles, then absolutely seek out ways to do that via podcast or write it down and submit it somewhere or um, have a Zoom call with friends and tell them, the story of what happened to you and record it because there's probably a historian or an archive someplace that would love to have it and your story is worth telling. Yeah, totally.
0: How how are you how are you and your husband staying sane during this shelter in place? Any tips well, for our audience? Shows well, no, to binge you know, watch. I,
1: I will tell you know, we skipped the making bread thing um, and have uh, just done, just gone bore, really bored into Netflix and, uh, <clears throat> and every other platform. Our cable bill is extremely high. Um, but we're not going out to movies or dinner, so, you know, it all evens out. Fortunately, I am um, hunkered down with uh, my favorite person. So I, I have a lot to be grateful for.
0: So any shows you're binge watching that you would uh, recommend besides
1: It's a Sin? Oh, (laughs) which I've seen every episode of. Um, So I would say I've been watching Sex Education. Really like that. Bridgerton is really great. You can always go back to any British baking show episode. You don't even have to watch them in order. Um, They make you feel all yummy inside and uh, are great uh, sleeping aids.
0: Well, thank you, Mark. You are, <clears throat> without doubt, a shot in the arm. <laughs> thank you, Ben. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks to Mark. Thanks to Newsdoc Doc Media's Eric, Eric Espera, our producer and director. Thanks also to Sarah Anderson from the Bay Area Global Alliance. Uh, Bay Area Global Health Alliance, I should say, and Sean Howell, our executive producer. And thanks to Brian Ragas, our program manager. And finally, thanks to you. If you have any questions or comments about this or indeed any of our shows, don't hesitate to contact us through Facebook and Twitter at Shot Arm Podcast. We'd love it if you leave a review on Apple Podcasts and give us five stars. It helps us get the word out. So have a great week and a safe week.